Jeff Sessions served as the 84th United States Attorney General from 2017 to 2018. A member of the Republican Party, he previously served as the United States Senator from Alabama from 1997 to 2017. He joins us now on Moment of Truth. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment. I'm joined by Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. And Senator Sessions, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you. Uh, it's good to be with you, Sharab and Nick. And um, the, this is the power behind the throne of American moment. <laughs> uh, I got to say, you know, you impressed me from the beginning. Oh, well, thank you really, so much. Both of you and, and the commitment that you had and the ideas and the willingness to act on them, uh, which a lot of people have ideas but don't act, uh, I think is most admirable. And I'm proud of what you're doing and proud to be a part of the program tonight. Well, we're we're so honored. I mean, I remember when you uh, we all first talked, I think we uh, we we'd set up a Zoom call with you and our team and, and you uh, picked it up. I think you were on your wife's iPad. You all were driving around <laughs> uh, in a van just seeing Alabama uh, after your election last year. And uh, that just I mean, it was just the it was just delightful to kind of see, you know, you guys really love your state. Well, I do. Alabama is a great state. And but the country is a great country. Yeah. This is a great country, yeah. the greatest country in the history of the world. It's yeah. objectively ascertainable, and it's so stunning that we have people today who want to pretend that it's one of the worst countries ever, yeah. and it's, it's not worthy of defending. They don't know our heritage, but really I think it's a lack of real historical understanding. Life, the world does not change overnight. And the fact that our founders could not fix every problem then existing in the world when they created this constitutional republic uh, is not a, an argument for the illegitimacy of the republic. Right. Is, uh, uh, and the things that they ideals they stated uh, have been advanced steadily since the founding uh, far more than most other countries in the world ever came close to achieving. Yeah. Now, Senator, you've cared about uh, these issues, the country, your home state of Alabama for a long time. Walk us through how you first got interested in politics when you were young. I, I want to hear the story of what high school and college Senator Sessions uh, cared about and what motivated him to first get involved. Well, nobody in my family were politicians. Yeah. Um, I had a grandfather on the school board one time, died <laughs> before I was born. But um so nobody was, but my parents kept up with things. They read the newspapers and every day, and were so I was sort of raised in retrospect in an environment in which there was no special interest agenda being driven, more like public interest. Uh, vision for the country and what politicians were honest and good and which ones were bad. You heard that around the table and in the country store my father had. So that's sort of part of it. But I had a great, interesting high school, junior high history teacher, and she was um, colorful and interesting and um, Barry Goldwater supported to the core. Yeah. And that kind of captured my imagination. Her older brother was truly brilliant English teacher. He taught our 10th, 11th, and 12th grade classes. And he uh, was a member of the conservative book club, the old conservative book club. He read every book that they put out. He told me, he said, Sessions, I'm worried about you. Uh, 
if you go off to college, they're going to lead you astray. <laughs> and so you need to read the National Review. Yeah. So I'm sure I was the only uh, person in uh, Wilcox County beside Mr. Dickey that read National Review, and I read it from cover to cover. <laughs> and I was studied, had brought my dictionary to learn the words and was able to tell Mr. Buckley, one time you warped my brain as a teenager and I've never recovered from it, <laughs> which was true. I never recovered from it. And, uh, but that, that was a really, really... So the school was small. This was uh, 30 in my senior class. Wow. We were far, pretty far away from any uh, city. 75, 80 miles to Montgomery was the closest city. And... Um, but the teachers were educated, they were cultured, they um, had good values, and we had a remarkable little school. This story is, people in Alabama all talk about it. They say it must be something in the water in Camden. But uh, in my class of 30, uh, one of the, my classmates, Judy Bonner, became the president of the University of Alabama, wow. provost for 18 years and president, and then provost at Mississippi State. Her younger brother became congressman from Mobile, wow. U.S. Congress. Uh, and two years ahead of us, uh, Governor Kay Ivey was in that class. Wow. wow. And uh, uh, her chief of staff is Judy Bonner's younger brother Joe, the former congressman, <laughs> and so. But it's it's. But we were, you had family values, consistent with school values, and we had a very very impactful Boy Scout troop, of which large numbers of the boys participated in, and I did. And you, every Thursday night we'd say our oath and. God and country and to obey the scout laws uh, do my best to do my duty to God and my country that's what you were taught yeah. and in church uh, churches uh, also affirm that so you had this affirmation from several cultural entities that influenced people and all these kids did well I mean, in my class of 30, probably most of the parents were depression parents. My mother got two years of college before she had to come home because they didn't have money. My father's older brother got to college, but he hit the depression and he didn't get to go to college. Uh, and that was tr true throughout. And so, uh, but they wanted us to go forward. And the message was to take advantage of the opportunities, do the right thing, uh, and you'll, you'll be successful in life. And they celebrated people who'd gone on to become, you know, to MIT and stuff like that. And those, those were things that, you were, that were held up to you as that you should emulate. I think it was, uh, so how did this happen? You go to these big high schools and they have all these computer programs and nobody knows your name. I went to a school where my graduating class was 1,375 students, biggest high school in Texas. Well, you can survive that, and, <laughs> but it is interesting that um, you had a, a congressman, a senator, and a governor 
from a town with classes at 30, size 30. Yeah. yeah. Um, so mathematically, that's pretty unusual. So I don't think it, I think there there's intellectual studies. There's studies that show smaller schools actually do better. And this fetish with uh, consolidating and building a big school on the interstate to try to impress people that you have a great school may not be any better on the inside than when there were four smaller schools where people knew their names. Anyway, that's another matter. But I do think that's where my interest started when I got to college, went to a small liberal arts uh, college, and uh, we formed, my wife and I were part of forming the first Huntington College Young Republican Club oh, wow. in history. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and so we were, I got active in campaigns and became chairman of the Alabama College Republicans. About that time, to show you the state of politics in Alabama, the state legislature, which now is a dominant Republican, had two Republicans in it. Hmm. Only two. And uh, they could caucus in the phone booth. Yeah. <laughs> so this was a George Wallace-dominated Democrat state. And we were sort of the insurgents uh, pushing back. And it took 15, 20 years. So I would say this, the people today, young people today, if you continue to advocate for the truth, uh, know what you're talking about, don't back down, stand firm, uh, it might surprise you how over a period of time the ball starts moving your way. So the left seems to have had its day recently, mm -hmm. but uh, I, think, I think there's a majority out there waiting to coalesce uh, based on many of the values that you, this group advocates uh, that Donald Trump talked about uh, that can be solidified and help transform the future of the country. Yeah, I um, I think a lot of our greatest statesmen, you know, in America's history have been uh, students of history and have gotten involved in politics from a very young age, you know, starting volunteering on uh, campaigns and that sort of thing. So when you and your wife were, were starting uh, college Republicans, who who were some of the people at that time that influenced you in the way that you thought about our country, our politics and that sort of thing? Well, um, of course, Goldwater really, I was I can remember junior high school, but Goldwater sort of electrified um, the community, and I got interested in that. I remember personally seeing the speech Ronald Reagan gave before mm -hmm. that election when Trump Goldwater was losing, and even I began to understand he wasn't going to win. Although, I, and um, so then Reagan came along, and that was a huge thing. Oh, and he, Would you have been in college at that point? Yes. In Reagan, yeah. Uh, actually, post-college. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was a member of the State Republican Executive Committee. and But Reagan represented the ideal. Like, why did it take us so long to nominate a movie star? <laughs> all things but he he had values yeah, right? right we knew 
what he believed in. He made me United States attorney. I was young, but he named me United States attorney in Mobile. I didn't have to be told what Ronald Reagan wanted us to do. I told my staff, the president sent me here for two things, to prosecute criminals and protect the U.S. Treasury. And that's what we're going to do. <laughs> that was uh, the, um, my view about it. But it was, it was a revolution. We had a great group of U.S. attorneys uh, nationwide. Uh, so that was an exciting time. I guess that was clearly the most formative. And there was a whole lot of young people that arose during that time were ardent Reaganites. And they remain so. Uh, I don't think Reagan was as ideologically pure as a free marketeer as most people think. Mm. Uh, and that's the way he's remembered by a lot of people and a lot of the purist cite Reagan, but Reagan was more realistic uh, in his views, and he was humane, and people liked him, and they thought he wanted to help them, and they, he was a patriot. He, he talked about America, you know, being great, and uh, Donald Trump came along and said some of the same things in a different mm -hmm. fashion, but there was no doubt that Reagan built a coalition that lasted. And uh, what we need to do is to use the agenda uh, pretty much of what Donald Trump ran on, what I had begun to advocate before he announced even, that is a working majority. And if you stay focused on those principles and bring in, you got to appeal to 70% of the American people to get 50% on a given election. You know, they don't have to vote for you every time, but they need to feel comfortable with you mm -hmm. and to feel like you care about them and uh, need to clarify the issues, who we are and who that other group is and why they're not good and why they're leading the country in the wrong direction. And it's just politics is a tough game. Yeah. You have to be willing to fight about it and it's not going away, but integrity and sound, sound intellectual basis for the issues, I think is important. And I think during the Trump agenda, there was so much um, controversy and all the things that happened that we didn't do a good enough job of affirming why uh, we're not, the trade is not serving our interests right and why we can make it better. Mm. We, we failed to, to make clear why a nation has to protect its borders and why it's not good if you have a, a totally lawless border. And we didn't spend enough time saying, haven't we overreached in foreign policy? Maybe we did get in too many wars. Mm -hmm. And how can we readjust that? So we have this opportunity now with the Biden presidency to solidify the intellectual foundation of a more uh, conservative uh, less ideological party. Yeah, let's let's talk about that for a minute. Like, how did you? So even even pre-Trump, you know, from being a young Reaganite or Reagan supporter, right, to 2014, you know, the year before Trump decides to run for president, what happened, you know, in our country or in your life, uh, you know, in between those times that made you believe the things that that you did at the time that 
Trump announced his candidacy for president? Well, um, one big thing was the battle over immigration. I studied the immigration bill that um, President Bush supported uh, and uh, the Republican leadership supported and it came through Judiciary Committee, which mm-hmm. I was a member, and I'd been a federal prosecutor, and I even prosecuted at least one immigration case, I remember. <laughs> and um, we did others, but there weren't that many. And uh, so I'd had a belief about this, that we need to have a lawful system. And I, I felt the power, the power of groups like the Chamber of Commerce, like uh, a lot of big business interest uh, and they weren't interested in the national interest in the wages of American working people. They weren't interested interested in lawfulness and maintaining integrity in our entire legal system. Mm-hmm. They wanted cheap labor, which is uh, one reason, the reason boats went to Africa and brought back people. They wanted mm-hmm. cheap labor. It was not right, and there's still uh, an issue out there, in my view. So I think uh, I felt that these people were not acting in the interest of the United States and the people of the United States, and it became clearer and clearer to me that when it came to trade and uh, war that um, they were out of touch. On the great Wall Street Journal, you know, I, I made a speech a number of times if uh, China subsidized their exports and closed American factory and mother could buy athletic shoes for 50 cents less mm-hmm. the Wall Street Journal would send China a thank you note for subsidizing <laughs> mama's shoes indifferent yeah. to the you know the layoffs that occurred and uh, so we had now we see the drugs. Uh, were we gonna? Ha- they mocked the idea that we would have an American shipbuilding. That was one issue that it, I was kind of embarrassed to support, but it was important to Alabama. We have, so I supported uh, that uh, Jones Act. But mm-hmm. the truth is, do we want all our ships made in China? Do we want no steel industry in America? Do we want no aluminum industry? Do we want Huawei taking over our 5G system and basically uh, supplying the Internet because they're a little cheaper? Is that what free trade is? If it is, it's ridiculous. It's not in America's interest. And uh, if we have to pay a little more for some of these products and maintain uh, strength as a nation, then I... I think we should be practical about it. So that that you asked me how it started, I could feel this power. And also, you remember years ago, the GM president said, what's good for General Motors is good for America. Mm. Well, they were a totally American country, company, but now these are totally global. They're not Americans. The stockholders are not American. They're... Uh, Suppliers are not American in a pure sense. Some are. There are some countries, companies, but a lot of the biggest voices that are moving huge millions of dollars into lobbying efforts. Those people 
are uh, have already transitioned. They've moved from, you know, uh, being an American interested company to a global company, and you can't trust them. Politicians, government officials, owe their responsibility not to the Chamber of Commerce or big business. They they, they don't owe it to anything other than the individual citizens that they represent. And their policies have got to be uh, best for the people. And um, it's not, uh, you can't trust the global corporate elites to give the advice that um, runs the country. You just, but Republicans got in the habit of, if you know Silicon Valley said it or uh, European Union said it, somehow this was all correct. And if average working Americans didn't like it, well, they are deplorable. The real people are these are the real people, but they they don't understand who they represent. They represent people, average citizens. You've used the term uh, masters of the universe before to talk about this this globalist elite that that makes all these decisions. And I mean, it, it's so interesting to hear you describe the mechanism by which your mind changed on these issues, because it's actually a story that I hear every day, which is that immigration is the wedge that makes you realize what's actually going on in this country, how big business that Republicans thought was their friend is not, that their interest is profits over people, and they're more than willing to sell out the country uh, down the river if it helps them expand their profits. Um, you know, you were, you were a law enforcement official, um, and so, uh, you know, you being a conservative member of the Senate, um, it made sense that you would oppose illegal immigration, of course. I mean, and and you you fought um, against a lot of the amnesty pushes. You fought for border security. Um, but it's a lot rarer to hear from politicians uh, and leaders who, who also care about legal immigration. What was it like being in the middle of all of those fights, being often a sole voice that was speaking out against open borders, both legal and illegal. Um, I just want to hear more about what it was like to fight against the well, swamp. Well, it was um, it was a uh, lonely thing. Well, we had three big pushes. One time they spent a billion dollars on lobbying. Every lobbyist in Washington was bought to try to uh, get this thing done, and that they almost got it done. But um, this is the problem. We, we're a nation that is generous on immigration. We admit a million people a year, every year, to legal permanent residence, green card with a pathway to citizenship. We have some 800,000 plus who come just to work. So there's few countries in the world that come close to that kind of openness, but there are limits. And um, the Constitution applies within our border. Our country, uh, the government has authority within our border, and that authority derives from the citizens of this country uh, who hopefully are steeped in its heritage, steeped in its constitutional order, steeped in its laws and traditions, and try to preserve this. And people come here because they like this. 
but they don't know it when they come. Many don't. And so I think our immigration system can continue to be generous, but it should serve the interest. If two people apply from Guatemala, one of them is a valedictorian and learned English, and one of them dropped out of high school, I mean, who should get in the country? There's some people, some progressive think, well, we should take care of the poor person first. That's not in the national interest. The government of the United States should serve the national interest. And it's in the national interest that we, when we admit people to permanent residency in the United States, that they be people who are going to flourish here. They have the ability to flourish here and and to take advantage of this great country. And we need to have a far, far greater emphasis on uh, assimilation and teaching that our country is different from other countries. And it's not bad. Our legal system, our constitutional order is good, and it must be preserved. Mm -hmm. to, To preside over in a few generations on people who think that this latest deal where the CDC orders uh, private businesses to not evict people who don't pay their rent. I mean, that is so breathtakingly unconstitutional, improper, unjust. Uh, It just shows that the left does not respect law. Yeah, you had... um reporters interviewing President Biden today about his eviction yeah. moratorium. And they were asking him, you know, yeah, constitutionally, this probably isn't good. You know, why did you do it? And he said, hopefully it'll survive for a month, you know, <laughs> before before they strike it down. I mean, it was just, it was kind of appalling. You had these people complain, you know, during the Trump administration, and they'd say, oh, this isn't, this isn't normal. This isn't normal. But you have a president right now who is, literally subverting the Supreme Court and saying, you know, it doesn't matter that 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 you think this is bad. Um, I'm going to do it anyway until until you strike it down. It's it's kind of crazy coming from people who spent four years complaining about Donald Trump being an authoritarian. Um, but moving back to the to the to the immigration. That is important. Yeah. When the president of the United States says basically acknowledges what he's doing is illegal. Yeah. And the president of the United States violates the law. That is a serious, serious. And it's somewhat acceptable, at least among the media. And uh, I say there needs to be a big pushback on that. It needs to be an educational mm-hmm. moment. Is You just say, wait a minute. Excuse me. Well, and that well, that's the thing too about it is that uh, a lot of I've seen a lot of people, particularly on the left, say, "Oh, well, it's just these corporations that are landlords, right?" But it's something like I think somewhere between fifty-five and sixty percent of landlords are like people who just own one property, like they own one house that they rent out. Um, my parents are one of those people. My my parents own a house in suburban Minnesota that they rent out the same the same rate as the mortgage just to pay off the house because um, they're missionaries in Honduras. Yeah, yeah, my so yeah. grew up yeah, grew up on the mission field and and so my parents rent out the house that I grew up in to to pay the mortgage and 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 they had a renter who didn't as soon as there was a, you know Governor Tim Walls in Minnesota as soon as he issued the eviction moratorium which we had in Minnesota for a little over a year the renter, though she still had her job, didn't pay rent for for a year 
and my parents like savings gone like paying the mortgage um and so it was extremely difficult for a lot of normal people i mean i can understand relief for you know people who have lost their jobs and trying to figure out some solution but an eviction moratorium was not it i mean we i think we wiped out a ton of a ton of families uh middle class families in particular that that only owned one property and i think it just goes to show that biden not only doesn't care for the rule of law but the democrats no longer care about the middle class this is such a stunning development. Um, this is such a direct assault on the constitutional order and private property. It's a taking of property. It's confiscation of a person's property for public use. And under the Constitution, you can do that through condemnation, but mm -hmm. you have to go to court. And you have the government, if they're going to take it from you to give it to somebody else, they have to pay you for it fair market value. Mm -hmm. You get to go to trial over that. Yeah. You don't get that. So they just order your parents, just order them that to uh, let this person stay there uh, free. Mm -hmm. And it is, is, but it's not the moral question. It's not the policy question to me that's so stunning. It's the legal question. You cannot, that cannot be tolerated. Supreme Court is going to knock this down sooner or later. Uh, it cannot be. And uh, but the fact that it's gotten this far is and the president saying, well, it's probably not justified, but maybe we can get away with it a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Maybe your folks ought to sue him yeah. personally. You know, yeah. but just somewhere there's something big time wrong there. Yeah. Senator, I want to talk to you about law and order because this is one of the issues that I think the right has gone so far astray on over the last decade. I mean, they seem to have lost their spine when it comes to being mm. willing to fight for law and order. On one side, you have, I mean, again, going to do a little libertarian bashing. It's always libertarians, you know. They want they, they want to do things like legalize marijuana. They, they want to have permissive drug laws. There's this big push for so-called criminal justice reform, which is really just releasing violent criminals from jail. When did you start seeing this trend on both right and left to oppose um, a tough on crime attitude? Because you were there in the 90s when when uh, Congress was tough on crime. And 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 how did we we fall so far from that? And what are the consequences you've seen because of it? Well, it really started in 1980. I was appointed United States attorney. Then Reagan ran on crime. That was a bigger issue for him than the Soviet Union. People thought he was going to cause a war. <laughs> they were scared. Reagan's going to cause a war. But uh, he talked about crime. He'd been tough in California. Not the U.S. attorneys that he appointed, and I was one of them, knew exactly what. And we had been having, like we are today, we'd gone uh, over a decade of almost double-digit increases in crime. People had burglar bars on their homes in middle-class neighborhoods. People were afraid. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it started, and it took about 15 years to reverse this trend. And by the mid-'90s, um, homicide rate was half what it was in 1980. People never would have thought that in 81, if you'd have told the American people, these trends that seemed to be inevitable, never-ending, we're going to be reversed, and we're going to have half as many. New York, 
Giuliani and Bratton and company, they went from 2,300 murders in one year in 91, I think, to under 300. Wow. Mm. Now, how many lives are saved? That's good policing. People said, police need training. Do you think they haven't been trained? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, do you think they haven't studied? These police chiefs work for liberal mayors. They are funded by liberal cities and councils. They are an extension of the uh, left-wing democratic cities. So if they're not performing, it's the mayor's job to fix it mm. and the council's job. But the truth is uh, they just wanted to buy into this narrative that we got too many people in jail, people in jail for a joint of marijuana, which is totally ridiculous. That is not happening. They wanted to do all that. And the left, I mean, not the libertarians. <laughs> They're basically, so, you repeat yourself. They <laughs> want to save. Well, they wanted, they turned on crime enforcement too. And crime was a big part of the realignment in politics of 1980. Reagan appealed beyond on the Republican base. He appealed to large numbers of Democrats who were sick of being violated. And the joke about New York was there are no more liberals in New York. The last one just got mugged. <laughs> see, Barbara Boxer got mugged in California, uh, Senator Boxer. But so those, it was a national fed up and we got serious and crime dropped. And so I predicted that, uh, so I was there, I was participating, I was a student of it, I watched it very closely in the 80s and into the 90s. It's uh, probably what motivated you to get involved in law enforcement. Well, these issues, I got on the Judiciary Committee, mm -hmm. and so I watched them after I left as, as United States Attorney for 12 years, which is a long time. And then two is state attorney general of Alabama. So I on judiciary committee. So we watched it. I watched it closely, uh, and the trends. So these trends, um, I knew as attorney general, this was bad. It had already started. We got time to talk about all this. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Go for it. So, <laughs> really, the second term of President Obama's term, they really went woke on crime. The federal prisons went from like 220,000 to 180 in the last four years. Then, after almost 40 years of decline in homicide rates, the last two years of the Obama administration, homicides went up 12 and 8%, 20%. This is stunning. Mm -hmm. Most people didn't catch it, but I did because I was watching those numbers. This is unbelievable. We had figured out how to reduce crime, make neighborhoods safer. The victims were minorities and poor people overwhelmingly. It's a national responsibility of the nation to provide safety for people's communities. It was getting thrown away. So when I got elected, Trump sent me an order, reduce crime in America. <laughs> Pretty simple, right? Yeah. But I loved it. That's exactly what we wanted to hear. Yeah. And so... I would call our U.S. attorneys and travel all over the country. We would meet with local police and sheriffs because what what the American people need to understand is crime in big cities, well, anywhere, is, is a local responsibility. 
Armed robberies and murders are not federal crimes. The FBI does not investigate those cases. 85% of law enforcement officers are state and local. So we, we called on them. We said our U.S. attorneys and FBI and ATF and marshals are going to work with you. And we're going to develop a plan in your community to reduce crime in your city. Mm-hmm. It dropped. It started dropping. The first year we had a drop. The second year had another drop. Then that's when the riots started. The George Floyd and all of that. And the, the Democrats capitulated. Um, the cities capitulated. They started blaming the police, defunding police, um, police were constricted in their ability to carry out procedures that have been constitutionally approved for decades. Mm-hmm. Oh no, you can't do that. That's somehow they think that's wrong. And these were bad decisions. So, uh, and they tried to blame Trump. James Carville did saying it happened under his watch. <laughs> These, you know, it started up yeah, yeah. back after those two years of decline. Why? It was because the police are run by the Democratic big cities, mm-hmm. Democratic machine, and they were making colossal blunders, and it was guaranteed to make things worse. But I will acknowledge it jumped quicker and more disastrously than I had even predicted. It's unbelievable increases in violence in America that should never have happened as a direct result of failed bogus policies. Yeah, we were talking about, you know, me being from Minnesota before the show. Yeah. And I, you know, have a lot of friends I went to college with who who used to live, you know, in the suburbs or, or kind of close to downtown in Minneapolis. They're all gone. Um, they have all moved out like way far away from the city because it's not it's a lawless place to be now. I mean, you you had, you know, Mayor Fry in Minneapolis would would go on TV and say, oh, you know, it's the cops fault. And also, you know, we're going to cut the police department budget by one third. And <laughs> the next day, you know, 60 police officers would quit or retire, uh, move on to other careers uh, because not only were they getting their budgets cut, but, you know, their mayor, their executive, the the guy that's supposed to be in charge of them is going on TV and blaming them and saying that they're they're racist, basically. Um, I mean, it's insane. And to go, I you know, I was just in Minneapolis a week ago um, and even just being all around the suburbs. It's a different place. It's not the place I left three years ago. I mean, it's it's fallen apart, uh, you know, boards all over businesses, businesses closed because of disastrous COVID policies in Minnesota, but also places that were burned to the ground during the riots. Um, so and I think there are a lot of cities like that across the country. Um, so as Republicans, especially considering, you know, that there are some Republicans now who want to be lenient on this stuff. I mean, moving forward to, to 2022 and 2024, should we run on a message of law and order again? And if so, I mean, how do we get the people who are supposed to be on our side to participate in this fight? Uh, we've got to. And um, we need to say a, a few things with absolute clarity. This should never have happened. It was a direct result of bad policies, basically abandoning policies that proved to work. 
and we know how to make America safer. And we have to say with absolute clarity, it is our duty and our responsibility, and the people that are suffering the most are minorities and poor people. Mm. And we are not going to let it end. You may live in your gated communities. You may live in your elite communities. But this country uh, and this this city of Chicago and Baltimore and St. Louis and uh, Minneapolis, you owe everybody. And you cannot allow the poor people to be suffering like this. Hmm. Uh, And you think all kind of things happen. Businesses won't build a business in a neighborhood if it's not safe. Uh, um, housing values drop. So you've got a person who worked for the county government in 65 and he bought a house and it's paid for and it was worth $150,000 or $250,000 a few years ago. Maybe worth 175 now. Mm-hmm. Uh, all direct result of crime. There's huge cost to that. People have to close their businesses. So, I, yes, and we've got a take and it's 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 part of the system is part of the flawed mindset of the progressive movement it's a just a highly visible example of stupidity <laughs> of ideological absurdity they had this ideology that too many people are in jail that police are bad and that is not necessary, mainly because crime had dropped so much. Mm-hmm. And uh, people didn't feel as, danger- as, as endangered as they were. And then they took these steps, gave up what we knew worked and made people safe. And now we're, we're reaping the whirlwind. It's just a colossal disaster. And it's going to take years to get it back. Yeah. I mean, people are going to die. There's blood on the hands of these cities. There's blood on the hands of many of the Democratic leaders. Uh, People like the vice president's team raising money to post bail for people who burn cities. Mm -hmm. I mean, what kind of message does that send? You think police officers don't understand that? They're watching this. And, And so the leaders don't want me to arrest somebody. Uh, what if you? What do you do with somebody that's six foot four and three hundred pounds, and you try to bring him under control and he slaps you away? Why not just walk away, and leave him alone? I guess because if you try to tackle the person or confront the person, you may be accused of wrongdoing. Besides, it's risky. You might get hurt doing that. Mm-hmm. You don't know what kind of person this criminal is, and so it's just. You have to have a motivated police force who are proud of their work and they have to be affirmed by the leadership and the community. And I think we're beginning to see the tide turn a little bit, but it's going to be hard to uh, restore the lawfulness we had previously. And um, they're not going to admit their wrongdoing, the people who are responsible for this. And again, it's poor people, it's African Americans, it's Hispanics that are suffering from this crime surge a lot more than the wealthy in the elite neighborhoods of the big cities. I I heard a story, I'm going to anonymize it somewhat, but I I have a friend who has a good relationship with a medium-sized city's Democratic mayor, and uh, he found out 
that this mayor um, has been able to escape a lot of scrutiny um, for defunding the police and giving in to the woke left because um, he came to an arrangement with a lot of the wealthy subdivisions in the city where he connected them with some friends of his that ran private security companies. And so they've set up patrols in these wealthy neighborhoods. Meanwhile, who actually suffers from the defunding of the police? It's poor communities, um, poor communities that suffer the most when there's public disorder, when businesses don't feel like moving in. I mean, the left loves to talk about food deserts, and I think food deserts are a real problem. There's these parts of America where there's no fresh food you can buy for 100 miles in either direction. You know what doesn't inspire the creation of a grocery store is when the grocery store is going to be robbed every single day uh, when when larceny isn't well, prosecuted. People are afraid. Yeah. They, they got, they, uh, the lady's going to work it. A, a fruit market, yeah. Uh, when she might be the husband or the mama or somebody, said, don't, don't, you know, that's not safe. Yeah. I don't want you down there. Yeah. I'm sorry. And so it does close businesses uh, in poor neighborhoods, and therefore the businesses that open are a lot more expensive, and it's really a tax uh, on the uh, poor people uh, in that that community. Yeah. One of the issues that I feel like has been a leading edge, a canary in the cold mine for coal mine for the broader public disorder we see has been the proliferation of drugs over the last 40 years. Again, you've been on the you know leading edge of this fight for a long time. It seems like Republicans and Democrats alike used to be able to agree that we don't want Americans addicted to drugs. And now that's changing. And uh, there's no bigger experiment that's been performed on the American people over the last uh, or, or over humans over the last 2,000 years and what we've done exposing the population to these extremely uh, novel narcotics, extremely strong strains of marijuana, cocaine, heroin, fentanyl, all of it. Um, what's that fight been like? I mean, you were very active as attorney general on this issue as well. You were active in the Senate. How, how have you watched that fight evolve? Well, it's, we've got to use our good data and be honest about the facts uh with regard to crime uh we've probably already gone too far but there was a justification uh, for some people probably got over sentenced and you don't want anybody to serve any longer than they should serve uh and uh but we've really gone a long way fast the other way and so i think it's probably gone too far but with regard to drugs so we need to be honest about drugs uh one of the great false myths is that the war on drugs was a failure. The truth is that uh, in 1980, over half of the high school seniors, according to the University of Michigan study that's been run for the last 40, 50 years, uh, admitted using an illegal drug. Uh, in 10 years, uh, that had dropped by over half. Now, how many young people's lives are better having not started? They created a climate in which drug use was unfair. In the college days, I used to hire kids as prosecutors, and, other, and they would say that, uh, I mean, I remember you went to parties and it, marijuana was all over the place. But after Reagan got elected and they started to um, push back against drug use, uh, you never saw that anymore. So it was a cultural thing as much, but the law enforcement had something to do with it. Now we've got higher purity 
of uh, marijuana than we ever saw. We've got a much purer heroin than we've ever had. We've had fentanyl, and we're now at something like 70,000 people died of overdoses last year. Again, up again, drug overdoses. That is a stunning number, 70,000. When I was became attorney general, it was like in the 60s, and we were determined to see it go down. I think it, we did get it to go down a little bit. But uh, that was a victory because it had been going up double-digit deaths, uh, increases in deaths from drug use. Um, marijuana, you probably saw the recent article about how many people are having a vomits and serious problems and it stops as soon as they quit marijuana. And um, police have said repeatedly, I remember in Boston, we had about 20 police chiefs and, and they volunteered about the problem of violence with marijuana. Marijuana's supposed to make you sweet, you know, <laughs> nice and kind and yeah. gentle and chill. Uh, but they said, I said, why? This was shortly after I became attorney general. And the answer they gave was, which I had heard in Alabama, there was a lot of money with marijuana and they get in fights over the money and kill each other. But new studies are coming out now that says it causes uh, psychosis, paranoid schizophrenia, and that is creates violence. So I don't know. This idea that marijuana is harmless, I don't think is scientifically sound. We need to find out how it works. You know, how much did we study the 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 uh, inoculations before we let those go out even as rushed as we were? Nobody's really studied this stuff. And I don't think it's healthy. Uh, and and uh, back in the 80s, one of the things that happened, kids started calling their pot smokers the potheads <laughs> and they dropped out they weren't you know they weren't alert anymore those grades were failing and other kids call started turning on them and saying you know i'm not using marijuana anymore that you you're a pothead and i don't know i don't know i can't guarantee it does seem like some people can use marijuana pretty often and not be debilitated or damaged by it. But I think statistically, if we had good data, we'll show that it's not as harmless as people say. And the, So you got fentanyl, which is deadly, and you've got uh, meth, which is so cheap now. Used to, they would make it in... I prosecuted a guy personally, got a beaker, this big glass bowl with all kind of wires, and he cooked it, you know. Then they started buying on over-the-counter drugs and converting that um, uh, and to meth. And then uh, now they've got these labs in Mexico, and they can just make unlimited amounts, as cheap as anything. And they can put it in trucks and then under the sneak it into the United States in huge amounts and having thousands and thousands of dosage units. Um, and uh, so that's, to me, to, to say that the government should just be wide open to drugs, I think is the wrong policy. We're sort of moving in that direction. We'll have a test of it. 
Certainly deaths have gone up. Uh, marijuana use has gone up. I saw the business channel, business page reporting that the age group 18 to 24, that was the growth market. They were bragging about it. They're going to continue to go. And, you know, we're so marijuana investors of being told younger people are using marijuana and she should buy marijuana stock. I think we're going to, so I'm worried that that won't be healthy for marriages and family. Uh, kids may not graduate from college. They may lose the opportunity at a good job because they've um, not maintained their alertness and, and their strength as a, and of character and, and work ethic. That's uh, hopefully I'm uh, exaggerating that, but I'm afraid it's uh, sad fact is I'm afraid it's true and dangerous. Well, I think that's been the rationalization from a lot of more. I don't know the way to put it, like marijuana minded members, I guess, like (laughs) Republicans who have who have been pro legalization is they've said, well, you know, marijuana, if it is dangerous, it's not as dangerous as this other stuff. And whose business is it of yours to, to you know, care about if someone's marriage stays together, right? Or if their grades fall, like that's liberty. You have to like be responsible for yourself or whatever. Right. What, what would your message be? I mean, to people, I mean, even, you know, staffers working on the Hill listening to this show who you know, would say, oh, it's not government's responsibility to care about families being together and and people's grades being good and graduating college, getting a good job. Um, I mean, why do you care about those issues? Why should Republicans care about those issues? What if 5% of high school graduates who had the potential and were on track to graduate from college and be a teacher or scientist or chemist or whatever, uh, lose that opportunity because of drugs. What is the economic, cultural impact of that? Mm-hmm. And what if their children suffer as a result? What if uh, their marriage suffers? And, and what if they not saved any money for eight or ten years when a good family maybe is putting aside money so when they get to be 65, they've got a half a million dollars in the bank mm-hmm. and they forego that. So I I don't, so I acknowledge, uh, I, I think we, we, we don't know enough about marijuana right now, uh, or at least it, it doesn't seem <clears throat> that we do. And, but I think this country needs to have a very serious analysis. And I am not so much a libertarian or a leftist, uh, that I think that if you can show that something is detrimental to a country, uh, maybe you could show that it um, is justified to have rules against it. Mm. I mean, so, so that, that's my view about it. I, I, I am not one that thinks you should legalize drugs. I don't think I think use will go up. Marijuana use has gone up. And uh, and the heavy use has gone up. So it's, 
It used to go up 50% or whatever it is. And then the people who use, use it heavily have gone up even more. And those are the ones that are going to have psychological and other consequences as a result, I'm afraid. But I, I think it's a matter that um, we should respectfully listen to the critics and say that we've over-criminalized it or we've, I'm willing to listen to that. Um, but as Attorney General, uh, U.S. Congress had made it illegal and they like wanted me to tell banks that you can take illegal money. And um, how could I do that? That's yeah. not what the law is. Call your congressman yeah. if you want to do this. But it was not legalized. Mm -hmm. And but so that that's uh, the. I think it's a hot issue right now. I think it's going to become less so a little bit because we're going to see the damaging increased damage from it drug use yeah i mean what a novel idea you know caring about how americans are doing you know it's <laughs> it's funny like i think i would assume that most normal people living in normal communities listening to you talk right now are like duh you know yeah i, I absolutely agree with that but kind of seems to be an anathema to some people here uh in washington well, yeah, this is what's sort of to me to been lost in some of this um the first 150 years one liberal writer wrote of American public, whenever a bill was discussed, it was discussed as to whether it would make the people better or not. Mm -hmm. Would it enhance their character, their work ethic, or, or good behavior, or diminish it? That now has become like you can't even consider that today. And I do think that in this Democrat republic, that we're a part of, it will not be any better than the quality of the people who make it up. Mm. And if they want something for nothing, if they'd rather um, have a little joint than go to work, um, if they want somebody else to pay for all their difficulties, uh, they want to blame uh, other people because they didn't study hard in high school and were able to succeed in college. They want to blame somebody else for it. And that becomes the society we're in. We're in a society in which um, uh, we've eliminated so many vicious racial policies. I saw them as a teenager and a young person. Um, and we made so much progress. So it's not perfect, but we made so much progress. And in a lot of areas of the country, we almost never didn't have that much mm -hmm. at all so we can't just be in this blame game all the time we need to create a vibrant culture where families are strong where people are raised and with good values and we need to uh, not denigrate but affirm religious belief that government should not tell people what to believe and how to believe it but uh, it shouldn't diminish it demean it like uh i saw a lot of during the obama administration mm. i think they deliberately picked fights with uh religious institutions to embarrass the institutions and um i think that trump reversed a lot of that we put a lot of judges on the bench that are believers and respecters of religion all of them basically and um uh, he asked us to write a policy to protect religious freedom 
and to constrain the federal government from interfering in religious belief. And we mm -hmm. we defended uh, Jack Phillips, the cake baker in Colorado. Mm -hmm. uh, you know that, and so those are the kind of things that that was his religious belief. And I thought it was perfectly right that if he didn't want to go to some wedding and participate in celebration that he thought was wrong, he shouldn't be made to do so. Mm -hmm. So those were the kind of things that uh, we need to, to advance uh, in our way. We need to make sure that uh, we are seeking to create a healthy culture where respect, hard work, uh, responsibility, individual responsibility. And if things go bad, you overcome it. You don't blame somebody else. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are jobs out there right now all over the place. And we should not be uh, subsidizing people who won't go to work. Mm -hmm. Maybe we could help them get enough income. And I have a plan that might do this. Um, <laughs> To, to help them uh, have more income, uh, but we should not. It should be tied wherever possible to work because that's good and that's healthy and that's what a nation needs. And we need to be subsidizing those things, not sloth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is common sense. And one of the you know, Senator, you know, we've we've talked about immigration, we've talked about crime, we've talked about, um, you know, a lot of what have been bread and butter issues for Republicans, for conservatives for 50 years. Um, but uh, one of the areas that I think um, you have uh, yourself reconsidered over the last, you know, 10 to 15 uh, years, especially leading into the Trump era, has been some of the details of what it is that we believe as good conservatives on economics. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about that. I want to talk about trade, supporting families, labor. Walk us through how you used to think about economics as a senator and, and where your head's at now about this issue. Well, I grew up with uh, people who worked and they didn't make much money. And I had classmates that... Uh, were poor, uh, but they were proud and, and that kind of thing. So we we had a number of things. We, I don't think there's any doubt we were going to have a transition to a more global economy, mm -hmm. that we were going to import more things. But I think policymakers advanced that uh, beyond the rate it should have been, created destabilizing results whole towns with uh, a textile factory with 10,000 workers uh, overnight, it was closed. There was a huge societal consequences for that. And we bounced back some. But so, yeah, I, I did begin to feel that uh, we were not protecting American workers sufficiently, that um, countries like China subsidized they targeted American industries with a goal of putting them out of business. And then they would be the supplier. Uh, and of course, the price of them began to go back up. Um, and that uh, then you had the national security question. So I, I came to believe that, uh, but 
when you talked about it, all these smart people. <laughs> Don't you know, Sessions? You tied to the soil or something. You know, you weren't about some old deplorable down in Alabama. We know we were just a, we're in the global thing now. You all this is the past. Well, the nation state has not ended. China certainly defends its interests. Japan defends its interests. Uh, you, the Europeans came over with delegations and such. They would never say anything that was critical of their country's policy, even though they may have been on the other side yeah. when it was adopted. And um, I think I think that um, so you the job of the politician is not to please the CEO. It's not even to see that we have. It's not even to advance um, GDP. Some people worship GDP. But this is, the policy makers, the governmental officials have to ask, is, is everybody, is this a healthy economy? And is everybody reasonably sharing in it? And I used to criticize, uh, I had a little speech about the people who, who uh Republicans who are, well, we want more entrepreneurs. If we could just have more entrepreneurs. So I would say, like, the average guy, he doesn't know who an entrepreneur is. Yeah. But he knows one thing. When they talk about entrepreneurs, they're not talking about him. Mm. Because it's somebody else. 95% of Americans are not going to run a business. They're not going to run a business, 90% anyway. And they want to have a decent job. They're willing to work hard. Uh, they want to be able to save some money and supplement to Social Security. They want to have a reasonable health care system. And they'd like a decent wage. And so for 20 years pre-Trump, wages uh, increases were less than inflation. While billionaires were, were surging. So this is a dangerous trend. Just any objective analysis. I mean, I believe in free markets, markets, but uh, the uh, this is not healthy. And so Trump reversed that. Part of that was trade, and part of that was uh, taxes and regulations and American energy and the border. Yeah, immigration. Uh, was immigration a big part was of the a big factor in that. Uh, but now it's already reversed. I see under Biden, yeah, well, they got wage increases, but somebody just said yesterday that the, it's less than inflation. Yeah. Yep. So this is not, this is, that means the average working person is de declining in his wealth. Mm -hmm. And I, I, so I, my view of, about it was uh, the people that have been singing this song and leading us down the road. Uh, the siren song uh, it is is dangerous, and that's what creates a Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warrens and all yeah. who have excessive governmental policies. Um, can we do some things that helps working Americans uh, be more productive? Yes, and we should do that. But uh, uh, we we don't want to go to a socialist economy. Yeah, on your point about. Uh creating um, entrepreneurs. The GOP talks about this a lot. And I guess, I suppose you and I are kind of entrepreneurs at this point in a sense, but, <laughs> yeah. but, but I have You're to- You're on your third business. Yeah, yeah, so true. Uh, but I have to say, like, I grew up 
working on in Honduras. I worked at a hog farm. Yeah. Uh, so I shoveled pig excrement for a living. I had the best hog living. in Wilcox County. <laughs> Did got you a really? pen. Still got the pen. <laughs> That's awesome. Excuse me. Go ahead. No, no, no. You're all good. I and 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 I, you know, honestly, loved working in a pig but like in many ways it's much more relaxing than what we do now you know like you you clock in your eight hours and you're done like you get to go home and 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 do whatever you want so i i think a lot of americans are are very much geared towards that like labor mindset they want they want to go and they want to do eight hours of of work that you know supplements the community right like we we slaughtered these pigs for meat we sold them to other farms i mean it contributed to the community and you did your couple hours of work and then and then you were done and you got to go and be home with your family um something that i want to ask you about uh is you recently spoke at uh the intercollegiate studies institute uh american political economy conference uh and you said something on stage that that we were there also i suppose i should mention that for (laughs) for our audience but um something that you said on stage that highly amused me was you you called out Oren Cass, whose whose book we have right there, uh, and we had on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and said that he, um, I believe the word that you used was like grudgingly got you on, or, or begrudgingly got you on. Board. I was a little grudgingly, <laughs> but I signed on. Yeah, yeah, yeah about his, um, you know, his his plan about uh, or his statement about labor and unions and that sort of thing i believe um, it was called a seat at the table right yes yeah. that was what it called was called thank you but i um, read it carefully <laughs> yeah so it so was a you, close call but it had it it was time to begin to push back right yeah well go ahead yeah. excuse me well can you tell us a little bit about how i mean maybe Orin changed your mind on this <laughs> issue or or the circumstances well anyway. yeah that was yeah. pretty unusual i remember uh when i was in high school i guess i was working construction and um we group of us in my class. I guess I was a junior in high school, and uh, you could work in those days. Yeah. But uh, so they called and said, "You have to join the union." I said, "I'm not joining." <laughs> <laughs> you have to join the union. I'm not joining the union. And it went on for some time. And I was only three months, you know, to work two and a half. And um, so I got. I learned a political lesson. I got a call from the state senator. Alabama state senator who had helped all of us get a job at the big federal dam, building a dam on the Alabama river. And he said, y'all guys, uh, it's a big deal over there at the company. This is a big, huge construction company. And, um, they really would like for you to join in. <laughs> so, um, so they so they made I've, and we we knocked it down to fifteen dollars. We had to pay them fifteen dollars for the right to work that summer, and I wrote on the check fifteen dollars, and I said for quote in the four blank the right to work, <laughs> and he didn't want to because Alabama was a right to work state, and uh, but this was a federal job, and uh, so anyway. So he, he didn't want to take it, but I made him take it. So I, I'm, I, I, as I said in that meeting, you, the ideal employer-employee employee relationship is not a, a hostile union against a hostile business, but a, the Nick Saban model where everybody pulls together as a team <laughs> to win victory, make more profits, and everybody should improve uh, the trouble is a lot of these companies are doing great and the workers aren't improving mm-hmm. so and so you there are two or three things that are happening 
you asked me about why how I transitions. Part of it is just understanding how much power is involved. So today, unlike 70 years ago, today, if a employees want a higher wage, what what does the company say? Well, we are outsourced part of the job. Mm-hmm. Or we'll just buy everything from Mexico or China. Or we'll close the plant, and that'll be the end of you. Mm-hmm. And you're not getting a raise. And we don't have to give you a raise. Mm-hmm. Besides, you people might sue us if you get hurt on the job. <laughs> and they don't sue us if we outsource it to uh, China. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there, there's series of deals in which corporations have extraordinary power that they didn't used to have. And I think it has depressed the bargaining rights of American workers. And how to level that playing field, I'm not sure. But I, I do think, and these, these companies are global. Used to a company started in a town and grew. Now the CEO who runs this plant is going, if he does well here, will go to a bigger plant and to a bigger plant. He has no loyalty to the community. Uh, and so I think that we have to be honest and tell the Chamber of Commerce, the Wall Street Journal, you know, you read the Wall Street Journal and wages are going up. You know what they think? Oh, it's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> wages are going up. Did you see that? The numbers were up last month. Yeah. That's bad news. Not for a government official, not for a United States senator. He, ought, he should be celebrating that, that something's happening here. Half of America makes less than $60,000 a year. Uh, a lot of them make a lot less than sixty thousand. Um, so, I, yeah. So I think the power shift has been too far toward business, and they've gotten too much leverage. And as a result, uh, their profits are up, and wages hadn't been up for twenty years. Mm. So you you're thinking about all these issues. You're thinking about trade. You're thinking about immigration. You're thinking about our endless wars, and then. Uh, presidential election happens in 2015, 2016. Uh, Walk us through the process by which you decided to endorse President Trump. I'm from Texas. I have a lot of friends who worked on the Ted Cruz presidential campaign, and they were just as surprised as everyone else was when (laughs) your endorsement came out for Donald Trump. What what did you see before anyone else saw in in him and and the agenda he was running on? Well, I had uh, begun to feel the power of this uh, corporate elites and the big money and the media which was hostile to us for cultural reasons mainly I guess and um, so I was worried about it and I thought Hillary was in a position to win um, and I had fought the immigration I knew all the details about it um, but we didn't and we basically got the American people on our side. It took a long time. But he said, we're going to build a wall. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, how much explanation did it take? And the average American nodded his head, dead gum right. We need a wall. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is sick. It's been going on. Nobody will end it. I got, that guy might just end it. I'm going to vote for him. So I had a sense that that was going to happen. And I had a sense that the American people had concluded 
they were patriotic and supported the war and all, but they began to wonder, Iraq and Afghanistan, was this actually working for Syria, Libya? All these things were happening. Maybe uh, it was time to bull back. And he had the guts to say it. Uh, and um, he, he, he uh, so all these things Trump believed, I just want to say and give him credit. He thought that our negotiators, trade negotiators, were stupid, that they had cut deals, that it hurt this country, and he couldn't believe it. It was just stupid, and he honestly believed that. So, therefore, he did not wimp out when all these people descended on him to try to get him to soften his trade and policies. And didn't they? Remember, tariffs were just totally unacceptable. But Trump slapped tariffs on them. Would you rather just slap, slap a tariff on these guys or drop an atom bomb on them? <laughs> then when trade is not fair, people are cheating you. You use economic responses. And a tariff is the most logical thing. It was at the founding of the republic. The biggest buildings in America uh, at the time of the Constitution were the Customs House. The only taxes we had came from tariffs almost. So um, this was, um, and so he broke the bottle on that one. The Republicans had never said the word tariff except mm -hmm. to oppose it. We, we were all in line to this, you know, free trade, free trade. <laughs> and uh, so was I. And, um, but I did become to see that. So, so I thought, that the guy was colorful, uh, bold, a sense that he was uh, catching fire. I didn't think any, I knew that, I knew that, that you could not be president of the United States if the Republican couldn't, if you couldn't carry the upper Midwest. And I'm, most people don't know, but the upper Midwest polling on immigration is higher than almost any other, even the South. Wow. And uh, they also was high on trade. I did not, upper Midwest had been devastated mm -hmm. by unfair trading practices. And so, and probably there was a stronger support in the upper Midwest over too many wars than maybe even the South or the West. But the key, he was going to carry, when he, you know, defeated Ted in South Carolina by such a large margin, that was, it was after that that I endorsed Trump because I felt like he certainly could carry the South and would carry the South, but his appeal was going to be really special in the upper Midwest mm -hmm. and that um, he maybe alone could get elected. I think that's true. I don't think anybody else would have won, even my good friend Ted, which I, Ted Cruz, who I really admire. Uh, I don't think he would have won that election. And uh, it was just uh, a, a time. And also his willingness to stand up to the political correctness. That was huge to more than a lot of people realize. He just would, you know, he called them fake news and <laughs> called them out and went to war with them. And the average American was saying, I'm sick of those people, too. They've been lying. They are fake news. <laughs> and uh, so 
he would have won this time uh, had it not been for the pandemic. I think that was always true. Uh, yeah, you can say all these other things he did, and he, I'm sure he, he made, made a lot of mistakes. But he never went soft on his cut taxes. He cut regulations. He's, people don't know how hard the border was. Could have been done a little faster, maybe, but he pushed. He never quit on that. Uh, he stood up on trade. He reduced our international presence. More American energy refused to sign into the Paris Climate Agreement, which was a, he had a lot of people pushing him to do that. He said no, and I was so happy about that one. But um, so I guess would say that that is a umbrella. Uh, that uh, is a winning coalition. That those issues will appeal to seventy percent of Americans, and you should appeal to most people. If you want to win an election, you can't just appeal to forty nine percent or even fifty five because you'll lose some. You need to have a broad appeal and hope to get fifty percent. So I I think. Uh, the new candidates and the philosophy you're approaching, the Orrin Cass is advocating, that um, others like ISI and all that have cultural, religious, traditional, historical values, not just GDP, by some CEO from Brussels who doesn't understand America or care about America. He shouldn't care about him. He cares about his stockholders. And uh, they, so those people don't need to be running this country. We need somebody, a candidates who will uh, advance that. Don't you think, I was thinking this the other day, I am generally of the view that we don't have to have every candidate fully understand what we're talking about now and what I understand you to believe in we just need some strong ones that do who are being supported by the public and the more moderate republicans and even some democrats are going to be brought over right leadership matters um you know we, we think about this a lot is that you don't have to you don't have to replace everyone you need a loud persistent charismatic intelligent minority that will lead and show the squishy, cynical people the path forward. And that's the way to do it. And that you can win. And they, See, they, they were afraid they couldn't win on immigration, but they yeah. pretty soon figured out they couldn't win if they voted for it. Right. Which was, um, um, I think that's right. Yeah. I think you're exactly right. I think there's reason to be optimistic. Mm-hmm. So we have the, the, the map. We have the agenda that coalesces a substantial majority of Americans and um, the leftists, uh, the people in their elite world who look down on people who go to work every day uh, and call them deplorables and that kind of thing. Those, they are the ones that are vulnerable. Uh, And if they they say a man's got to let somebody stay in his house and not pay rent, those things, the average American knows that's that's more than just a little money. Mm-hmm. This is a 
threat to the constitutional order in this country. So I, I'm pretty excited about the possibilities. We've got some young voices out there in the Senate and the House that are making a good, setting good messages. But when I left as Attorney General, I thought that there was a gap, and that is we needed more of an intellectual foundation for the Trumpian-type agenda, the one that I had been fighting for, the one that he pretty faithfully advocated for. And uh, when you come out and show that, that we're not ideological, we're practical people. Conservatives are practical people. They live in a real world. Uh, so we're going to legalize all drugs now? <laughs> we're going we got too many people in jail, so we're just going to let them all out <laughs> without knowing the impact of that? Uh, so conservatives are saying, well, you know, how many people can you let in this country illegally? You know, don't we have to have a border? And, and the, the, the Republicans that say we're not a... Um, we're not a country, we're an idea, you know? No, 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 we're a country. We got laws, we got borders, we got a, a, a heritage, a history that binds us together and people will fight and die for that entity, that, that nation. Um, we've always brought in more people than most other countries in the world and it's been blessed us, but it needs to be at a level that we can absorb and that people can be assimilated. And they need to buy into this republic, not, not have a different, want to create a different republic. So those are, I'm optimistic. Uh, it's not certain. Who knows what will happen? But the Republicans need to win this a majority back in, in the Congress. I think they can do that, but they can't do it. We cannot do this if we have uh, libertarian purists uh, and uh, uh, Trumpian people fighting at each other all the time. I mean, this is the working majority. We're, if we stay in there all the way, uh, that's, a, that's a winning majority that, that can govern this country. and maybe save it. Senator, I mean, it's a joy to talk to you every time. I mean, just as an aside, I I I remember the first time I met you, I was doing a fellowship program with CPI and uh, uh, we we met over lunch. Um you were speaking to all the fellows and I don't think there's anyone I've ever met where there's as big a gap between how the media portrays them and how they are actually in real life, and and you were you were definitely a shock in that sense. I mean, I think we had a you know a noon lunch, and and over the course of an hour, you referenced you know thirty things you had read that day. I mean, you're you're still clearly keeping up with the issues, and I hope you'll continue to be a, a voice for these values um, in the public square. Um, for for a long time. And so thank you for everything you've done for the country and, and thank you for, for believing in us as well. Well, I do believe in you and um, I, I'm telling you that if you're going to reverse uh, the trends and advance this agenda, we've got to have people like you that are working night and day. Um, you, 
you don't keep a time clock, do you? <laughs> Y'all don't do that. No. I mean, no. so you, you're totally committed to this, and I'm, I, I really admire you for it. You're going to be, continue to be successful. Thank you, Senator. Uh, and thank you all for listening to this episode of Moment of Truth. Be sure to subscribe, rate us five stars, and tune in next week. Thank you for listening. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.